0: You are listening to Lockdown, a security and technology podcast brought to you by Voxiferi Broadcasting. Subscribe now to this and other Boxiferi shows via your podcast client of choice.
1: This is Lockdown, a security radio show brought to you by Red Hat, presented by Richard morell featuring the brightest and the best in the information security arena, globally. Make sure you subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Player.fm, or your chosen podcast client or the RSS feed. For now, here's our latest show.
0: Hey guys, you're listening to part one of a two-part podcast with myself, Richard Merle of Red Hat, talking to Lance James of Flashpoint. Now, if you've watched season one of Mr. Robot, you'll have also noticed that within 24 hours of this podcast going live, season two launches. And prior to season two, the network put out a show called Mr. Robot Decoded, talking about the origins of Mr. Robot and what influences and why it's realistic and why the producers have gone to the nth degree to make sure of the realism that's deployed within the script writing, the editing and the production of the show. They talk to security Illuminati, uh, the, the best of the best on the show. And if you've watched it, if you haven't seen it, you can catch up with it on YouTube. Uh, If you watched the show, you'll have noticed that one of the people that I talked to was my boy, Lance James. Now, Lance and I had prior recording at RSA Conference in Moscone Center in March, and we put our heads together. I knew he was going to be in the UK. And what we've done is we've put together two 30-minute podcasts. Now, I don't usually do a 30-minute podcast. I usually do 10, 15 minutes. We had a lot to talk about. Now, bear in mind... Lance was in the UK to talk to some of the biggest turnover companies in the UK about threat mitigation, to talk about security. They're paying him big bucks to fly across the Atlantic in order to brief them. So, this is costing you nada. It's costing you nothing. The best you can do sit back, enjoy, listen to Lance and I talk about what makes hackers tick, what you can do as an organization to protect yourself. Come back next week part 2 beckons. Thanks for listening. It's not often I get to record podcast sessions with security royalty. However, today we're going to make an exception. Um sitting opposite me today is Lance James. Lance, say hi. Hey. Lance, give me your title because we've recorded before at RSA conference in San Francisco, but let's remind the visiting public, the listening public what you do. Uh, I'm a chief scientist over at Flashpoint. What does Flashpoint do? Flashpoint is uh, focused
1: on intelligence in the deep and dark web. The deep and dark web. I think I need you to dig deeper. So it is a terminology utilized for the idea of what I would previously call the underground with uh, forums that are blocked by passwords or Tor or ITP networks that are usually... Uh, engaging in illicit activities such as ranging from drug uh, drug sale markets such as similar to Silk Road all the way up to uh, malware distribution and uh, carding forums such as like, you know, trading uh, – stealing information from banks and, and trading that information. Um, that's kind of the, the, the gist of it. Uh, there's multiple different types of um, – ways they're doing that, and then it also gets into, like, obviously botnets and DDoSs and and, and different types of attacks. But it's basically where the criminals uh, hang out, and we're monitoring and kind of keeping an eye on that, so. And working very much with law enforcement. Uh, Yeah, we've helped, uh, we've done some industry um, help uh, with uh, law enforcement, such as the Spy Eye case that we just recently um, uh, finished up, so... That was a, uh, a couple of Russian uh, criminals that were writing the malware that was causing a big problem in twenty ten through twenty eleven, and it was uh, and 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 onwards. And uh, basically, it was going to be the next Zeus, big uh, big piece of uh, bank inf- information stealing malware. And uh, we just f- they just finished the sentencing hearing, and we got to help out uh, uh, on that as well. Uh, I was an expert witness uh, on that case uh, to assist in both on the sentencing side as well as some of the investigations prior. So. This is real Mr. Robot stuff. Yeah, it's up there, um, and the difference is, it's in two different countries, which is very interesting. Where Mr. Robot is kind of within its own thing. I would say Mr. Robot's more like an example of the insurgency, can, uh, hacktivism that we see. Um, you know, uh, we, I think we all know it has a little bit of a, a Fight Club ish uh, plot to it. Um, but in the same sense, yes, it's it's. Hacker versus hacker. It's mono and mono. The difference, I think, that I would say about it, though, is also is, this has been a, the, the spy case specifically was a very good demonstration of um, public and private sector uh, information sharing and, and, and uh, research and investigations working together. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, back and forth about the opinions of that and how well it works. Uh, in this case, I feel like the agent in charge of the case uh, was really determined. He was new to, the, new to the force at the time and to the FBI, and, and then Basically, he came out and just was really gung-ho about, like, you know, doing this, and he didn't let loose of this bone until it was taken care of. And so it was nice to see, even though it took over a period of six years, it was nice to see it all the way through, uh, which is a good example of seeing, you know, know, a lot of people don't really give credit. You know, there's a lot of people that are anti-government in that sense, but a lot of people don't also see the hard-working individuals that are, you know, doing a lot of work slaving away, you know, not getting sleep over trying to, to help, uh, you know, protect people from, from their banks getting raided and, and, and continuing cybercrime that's been, you know, obviously uh, raiding our internet and... Uh uh, so I think on that case, uh, my experience working with uh, those people uh, it was it was impeccable. And on the other side, it was great to see so many industry players also uh, helping and, and uh, uh, collaborating on, on getting something together to to, to to make some big impact. So uh, I think uh, you know, not everything we can all agree on, but I think this was a great case of public-private sector uh, uh, collaboration. So,
0: a lot of the threat that's emerging in. Enterprises who are using traditional enterprise firewall-based computing, but also into the cloud. So many customers that Red Hat work with on a daily basis, they've got their enterprise networks behind their bastion firewalls. Mm -hmm. They're moving out into this brave new world of cloud. They might have Amazon Web Services. They might have Azure. They may be using services in Verizon or wherever. The issue that they have, you know, we, we talked about this previously, where you've got companies who are outsourcing a lot of development to external, even foreign companies, potentially not doing due diligence over that source code. But then you've also
1: got the social engineering threat. Is that growing? Oh, it's, it's – <laughs> so, so let's step back. So when you're talking about the code, all this stuff, let's talk about the OSI layers, right, the seven layers, right? And at the top of the one is obviously the application layer, right? Beyond that, there should be a layer eight, the human, right? So, And this is an attack on uh, layer eight. In 2002, I was at TourCon on a panel and we were talking about what's the next big thing and I... I said digital trust, misplaced trust, uh, you know, is going to be the thing. The firewalls won't count anymore, right? Uh, and at that world, I was myopic in my view because I was into cryptography. And so I was looking at threat models from that perspective. And the one thing about crypt- cryptography, when you look at threat models, is you're super paranoid, right? You see things like, how are they going to get our keys? And it's going to be – the biggest loss in passwords is I gave it out to somebody, right? It, it's Social engineering is, you know, human pretexting, uh, social engineering um, – In some forms of the world, in the military side, it's called PSYOPS, you know, things like this. It's one of the most effective things. I mean, when we go into this, it's really, you know, people talk about the technologies and the computer systems and all this. It isn't about them. They're blinking lights. They're doing fine by themselves. It is about the humans behind it, whether it's code, all the way, uh, I write a thousand line of of code today, how many mistakes am I going to make? Even as a security guy, I'm going to make some mistakes in my code, and, and that could cost me, right? And the problem is the hacker, you have millions of lines of code that are people writing, and then the hacker, all he takes is either one password from an HR, you know, he lures an HR with the wrong document because you know the whole point of HR is to receive external documents. He you know, gets it in, that one time in he's in, or you got millions of lines of code and everybody thinks the hacker is awesome or a genius because he found one one vulnerability out of the million lines of code. Now, I feel bad for the, the developers that are having to do a lot of work on that. Um, but yeah, that is the number way one way into the system. And the, the other thing is the most uh, used tool within business today is email. Right? Um, so, ranging all the way from the success of why CryptoLocker was successful so fast was the fact that it didn't have an exploit site up and it didn't have these things that you could take down. It went through email. It looked kind of legitimate. It, and people are rushing there and it would focus on business. And business emails, people just go through and they'd see it and they go boom, boom, boom. Um, so, social engineering is huge. I mean, it's, it's the number one thing. I mean, I wrote the Phishing Exposed book in 2005, 2006. And I, back then it was like, wow, you know, this is going to be the next thing. I, I, I will say I, I got one thing off a little bit uh, wrong myself was I didn't see how spear phishing was going to evolve so well into the enterprise and still work so well. Uh, whereas I always kind of was looking at it, it's just going to be a serialized uh, campaigns that are back and forth, back and forth. But the, the, what's happened – is we saw RSA get breached in 2011. And that was kind of the birthing of nation state and people going, wow, what sophistication. They, they did some very cool stuff and, you know, cool stuff in a bad way, but cool stuff in the sense of their sophistication. And then they stayed in there for 11 months, right? But they got in there with a document, with an email, you know, and were, you know, going laterally through the network. Now, the thing I have a problem with is, is that when we look at organized crime, when that came out, we saw – that organized crime is going to go, wait, I want to stay in there 11 months. I don't have to keep doing these campaigns for every two weeks and attacking the client end. So then we saw a shift. We saw a target breach. We saw bank breaches. We saw direct. Now all we see is direct hacks into these banks. And they also are getting the serial campaigns of also let's steal all your data from the outside as well, such as they use it to get malware and infected. So it's a money pot, right? It's, it's can we get both sides, right? Um, and so, what's happened is the nation-state approach, which is really when you look at advanced persistent threat, it's just a, uh, a motivated hacker behind the wheels, targeting a system, targeting a network. Um, it's gone back to that old school days where it's going into there and they're using social engineering as the number of way in. The biggest problem is people want to, to battle it with fish tests, phishing tests. Okay, I can guarantee you that I can be in a room with 10 people, even if they're security guys, and one of those people are going to – you can talk about it. I've literally been in a room doing a a whole thing on don't click on this. Minutes later, we leave the meeting, and I go send something out, and they click on it. Now, that's never going to stop, right? So what do you learn from doing a phishing test? I mean I'm nothing against the people that are doing the phishing test. It's great education. It is nothing against that. Over time, maybe if you drill it in them, you know, they know less and less, they'll, be, they'll build the instinct to be more careful. I haven't seen this email, this and that, right? Okay. But the problem is attack surface reduction once it's in. You should assume that they are going to click on it. So the best way to build a threat model is to assume you are already, already in a hostile environment. What do you do then? Can you still operate as normal? So those are the things like, okay, do we have containers? If they do click on it, is it going to go anywhere? Is our system isolated? Why are laptops talking to X, Y, Z? Why are they even allowed to go lateral? Why aren't, like, people that just have a normal day job, you know, whether in accounting or this or that, whatever departments, why are they having access to most of the network? Uh, why aren't those physically separated networks? Other than the main things like your email, this and that, we know email's public, technically. I mean, I assume that if my email's not encrypted, it's being read, right? So the things that we standardly use that we can put in the cloud, the emails, the other things like that, we keep all of those on the cloud, and then we physically separate. There is no reason. But, but again... Um, you know, people are going to click on it, so we have to start acting uh, – we have to make the battle – take the battlefront to after the click, what do we do, right? Like, after that click, there's going to be, you know, a, a company uh, the size of, you know, any big company out there, right? Whether 300,000 employees, a million employees, whatever, it, it, you know, 1,000 employees. It's the one that gets in, and that's it. And that's the problem is even from the start – When people build out the companies, they don't think about that. The only time you think about it is if you're on the government side and you have a skiff and it's just not physically accessible. And and we see that human problem because we saw Snowden and we saw him manually take information out. And that's still a human problem that was – him doing a long-term social engineer, getting in and getting access, right? So, but that was a deliberate attack within a SCIFT air gap network. Correct. And that wasn't a technical attack. It was, no. you know, and, and that's what I'm saying, but it's all theft, right? It's all, they. The, everybody wants intellectual property. They want the information. Oh, to quote sneakers, it's all about the information, yeah. right? So it, it, today you see all these leaks and things like that. It isn't about the hacking anymore, the tools and stuff. It is about the fact that it, things have changed and one, if you look at culturally, people are upset you're going to mention Sneak it's all about the information, Marty. Marty. <laughs> it's, it's all about the information, Marty. It's <laughs> all yours, Bish. No more secrets. <laughs> no more secrets. And it literally is. There is no more secrets in that sense. Um, it and it you, you, Let's go to that from social engineering to insider threat, right? Insider threat, I, I always joke. I said, you want to you solve the problem, give your employees a hug more often, right? It's a joke, but at the same time, there's a moral, moral behind that is um, – most of the issues with insider threat are come down to um, uh, not being able to detect that someone's angry, and there's not a transparent communication line, uh, or they feel trapped because they have the one boss that you know, and there's no way to get outside of that glass ceiling. There's all of these reasons. Some of it's ego. Some of it's just you know, you're going to get quirky people. They're not going to say anything, and you know, next thing you know, right? Uh, some of it can be ideology. Whether I you know whether Snowden's really ideology or not is to be determined. But uh, the point is is that. When you look at that, for instance, um, let's go to accountability systems to insider threat, to social engineering. Yeah. So <clears throat> when you go into a building, when I walk into a building like a, a, a bank building uh, and walk in there and I say, I'm here to see Rich Morrell, right, yeah. uh, at Red Hat, right, and I, I, I'm here to see you. Guess what? You have to check me in. You're responsible for my actions in this building, right? I can't be leaving your site other than going to the bathroom, um, and I come back, right? So you're responsible in that time that I'm here. That's how the system works from a physical security perspective in that case. When I go to, you know, if you go to the Pentagon, it's the same way. If I actually, it's even that bad. If I have to go to the bathroom, you get escorted by a military yeah, yeah. person. So if you, with a sidearm. You know, yeah, with a sidearm, <laughs> right? So when you look at that, that model works, but we haven't applied it to... The information that we're dealing with, we're we're only applying it uh, at the layer, a physical layer, right? So, so for instance, if I have – I'm in a Snowden scenario. Let's not include a SCIF, but let's just include a Snowden scenario, right? I've got someone upset or maybe he's recruited or something. There are multiple reasons why insider threat happens. But when you look at it, is there anybody accountable for that person's action? So if you have to give him a sensitive document one of the biggest problems even in corporations they don't even know what's beyond confidential they just see confidential and then they think that just means internally in the in the in the, in the company there's no need to know policies there's no what label based there's no yeah it's legal based not traffic light protocol yeah. which would be this is very sensitive this is that and, you know this is red this is amber this is green and this can be public right uh, and, in, you know, similar to the classifications on the high side of, of things as well, they have systems. Did it work? Obviously not with Snowden because he had access to the keys of the kingdom. System administrators do. Don't upset your system administrator. Lesson learned. Um, but go back to the accountability. When I, If I have a file and it's sensitive and say it's classified, right, uh, and it has uh, pieces that you have need to know or you have certain tickets basically that you can look at, right, but maybe they can't. The, there needs to be something that allows – it says when I when I give this file out to somebody else, I they're either on a timer, they are checked out, and I signed a key that said, hey, that person now has this like a, a web of trust. And then basically it lets the accountable person know this person has this file for five hours. There's an expectation, this and that. And then it comes back and says, okay, uh, you know, the uh, manager gets an alert saying, hey, you're responsible for this document. You know, the ownership of it, uh, it's exceeded five hours. It, it basically – Puts that person's file on timeout and basically you know, kind of brings it back up there. And if he wants to check it out, it's like a library. The library has the best accountability system in the world. I could lose a book from 20 years from now, and I'm still going to – wherever I move, I'm still going to get a letter from the library. The, that system ironically works because it's an account accountability system, and it just seems like we – don't apply that. You know, uh, when I am a, a guest in your house or if, you know, an employee or this or that, I have need to know or this or that, why isn't there a buddy system that has, you know, a pairing? You can't really, in most cases, insider threat. If there's multiple stakeholders, two at one person or two people, it's very hard to click out and, and have them all want to take that risk. Okay. So you're limiting the exposure to that file. And if that file's taken off the server, it has a key that's binded to that system you can't take it off, and it basically can docker or, or, or report up that it was taken or removed, right? If the file's missing, there's always an accountability system. And it comes down to accounting, right? But I don't understand why that hasn't been done. I mean, that's something that just seems a little bit uh, – it's worked in many classic traditional ways of, of handle, uh, handling you know, something that's on loan, a book, right? It, libraries wouldn't have worked if they couldn't have been able to enforce it, right, and, and, and track it. So – it's the same thing. It's just uh, managing your assets, man- managing and, and being accountable and having accountability for the people that you're under. Uh, in corporate worlds, sometimes that's a hard thing to sell because there's politics and no one wants to – everyone wants to blame upwards or downwards, you know. So, you know, but that's how you would do it. You'd have to have an accountability protocol. But it's about reputation, isn't it? How, you're only as good
0: as your last job. If you are working in a security environment and you're not thinking about all the envelope-based attacks or, or you know, all the stuff around the edges – what could you do to your employer
1: right exactly um i always say you know what have you done for me lately right it's and you are it's it's the reputation is like you said exactly as good as your last job but we
0: work in an industry where everyone has a cisp where you know you go to security conferences and they give you more points to keep your cisp up to date and you know you have all these isct security exams etc etc you know everyone's an expert
1: right um it really is and, and and the the sad part about it is is building a reputation like uh, i mean the good news about it is if you've built up a good reputation that's the last thing you want to like ruin right like uh, there's a robert green had probably law number 5 in the in his book 48 laws of power Um, your reputation is your life guarded as such, right? Because it really is. Like if that changes, let's go back to the dark web about that, right? So dark web, reputation is everything. It's why it it, it succeeds because if someone rips someone, they go da-da. So we go back to here the same thing as our reputation here is that that of like what we know. But, I mean, also even with the – there's a gap going on, right? So there's a gap in security knowledge too, right? With the – nothing against the certifications in a general sense – but I'm seeing a lot of people graduating master's degrees in information security, and they've never touched a computer, mm-hmm. right? Uh, they've never seen it where there was a terminal, and you have to ask them, where, where, where's, the, "Where's the terminal?" You know, did you, oh, you know, ask someone, you know, technical, and it's. They ha- they weren't born in the days where there was a Commodore 64 or an Apple IIe, and you had to, like, program to make the thing work. You had to talk to it. You had to learn its protocol and, l- and its language. Today, it's things we take for granted, and we think – in- and those jobs are needed. Trust me, information security risk – People are needed because the myopic view of a hacker doesn't think about the big picture in that way. Everybody has their field of view, yeah. right? Uh, and I'm learning more about like it, when I try to miss a problem, or if I'm seeing personally that I'm not getting it, I just go, "Okay, what field of view are they working in?" And maybe I'm just not seeing that. Yeah. But that's a hard thing to shift. That's a something. That's a mantra you have to work on, right? So, but that's a that's an issue with um this is that that gap for alone is like you know when i'm finding more and more people when we go insider threat or this or that or that everybody's still asking how do we solve it and then the only people trying to claim they've solved it are companies that are building technologies that just want to you know like you know some of them may be legitimate but there's a lot of companies out there that are also just trying to say they solve it right yeah. um and you know I, you can't solve a people problem with just technology right it's a cultural issue um for instance, when we talk this reputation thing or building up an accountability system, do you know how much like conflict you're going to start just trying to implement that in an environment? This is why it's an idealistic idea, and it's not uh, it's not something that can be just after the fact now because it's a, it's an it requires EQ, it requires people to know how to you know manage people and, and morale and make sure you know and and so many people are afraid of conflict in in, in businesses and stuff and you know given the world I, I don't blame them in some senses but. There's some people that are, you know, uh, it's just we're people. We're, we're we, Some people are, you know, assertive and loud and some people are soft and this. And it's just this mixture. It's very hard to introduce a concept like that.
0: I think it's very hard for CISOs as well because the CISO. You know, I, oh, the expectation is on Oh, The expectation, yeah, but th- there's another way of looking at it, and that is that many of these CISOs don't do security, they do governance. But they're doing governance for the parent company, not for the customers who are consuming the services. Yeah. So it's like they then have their cybersecurity professionals, their security infosec teams underneath mm-hmm. them. And it's how do you marshal your troops? How do you get the best out of the people you've got? Do you make them investors in your network? Do you make
1: them co owners of technology? Um, Well, the biggest thing is you said Marshall. Marshall means leadership, right? Um, And the problem is I've I've seen a disconnect between the CISO and then the InfoSec team. And just because of what you just said, governance versus, uh, you know, actual like technical stuff. And I feel like there's no intermediary. Sometimes I've seen literally I've been in a meeting with a a CISO and I've seen their team. And there's complete disconnects just because of the the skill sets and the requirements and the view, the field of view they're in versus the field of view of – this, so his job is to look at another thing. He's managing more upward to the policy players that, are like, want to see the, the the answers to the risk, the, the board that says, hey, what do I got to worry about? And it's a general thing, but, like, you know, and then there's the minutia of the InfoSec engineers, and the Intel guys, and all the people trying to do all the groundwork. Um, but marshalling is an interesting thing. I personally think in general uh, security uh, industry uh, lacks leadership, right? I, I – I'm, I'm noticing it more and more. We are very loud. We're a very loud community. Yeah, you did this wrong. You suck, right? You did all of this stuff, uh, and, and, and we just keep screaming, and no one can kind of align and decide how we're going to change it. Good. I got the idea that you can pack into a car. I got the idea that you can break a Linux kernel. I got the idea that we all know that we screw up and stuff. So I got enough negative reinforcement. Mm-hmm. I should be scared to death because some people ask me to go speak on, like, scaring them to death, and I prefer to not because yes. that's not how you solve the problem. Um, And now it's about time to say, okay, is there, uh, uh, the word again, marshalling, how do we get everybody in line? And I think it's the issue is, um, it's a hard issue. I don't know if I have the answer right yet, but I think from a CISO perspective, I almost feel like there should be an intermediary between the, the, uh, the language gaps, right? To me, I feel it's like two different languages. There's the risk language, the language of governance and risk. And then there's the language of how do you have hackers solve some of these, you know, uh, you know, complicated problems. And engineers, too. And, I mean, when I was at Deloitte, we even had psychologists on our team, right, on our R&D team. Because when we were trying to solve these problems, it doesn't just come down to technology. It did come down to how people interact, and in, 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 in both in group settings as well as individual settings. So um, it really comes down to, I think, we have to figure out how to, to fix that language gap. I've always recommended giving Nerf guns to the hackers and then the CISOs and, and the executives so that they can, like, go at it and kind of loosen the, the tension. I think the biggest thing that comes down to it, even the CISOs don't understand them. And a lot of times I find CISOs want to not be in a suit, and they want to be more on that level. But that's, the, that's their job. They get, they're, they're there, and, and they get – you know, they, they, they're doing their job. And then the – The hackers, some of the CISOs out there are great, and they're fully respected by the hackers that they work under or the engineers they work under or the the InfoSec teams. But also there's a disconnect on the hacker viewing the executive in general, right? And so to get that marshalling is going to be very difficult because it's actually a translation issue of uh, field of view. I don't understand the CISOs field of view, and you don't understand mine. Right, and and that is what's disconnecting a lot of these problems, mm-hmm. is that governance is not something an infosec engineer thinks about, right? They think of that as a here, here's your checkbox award. You got that, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. And even we're seeing that with threat intelligence today. You're getting a checkbox award. Do I have, you know, do I have deep and dark web coverage? Do I have, uh, you know, OSINT, uh, pastebin coverage? Do I have, you know, my IOC feeds covered? Do I have this? And it really comes back down to Always budgets and coverage and liability, but then again, you, you people like you and I, Richard, we, we care about why are they getting hacked, right? But then again, all we're doing is complaining, and and so it's it's you got one side we're complaining. It's kind of like when people did, you know, when they do an occupy, right? They yeah. do an occupy Wall Street, or they occupy, and then if you called them in and said, okay. Because you know, the Occupy Wall Street was really about don't be rich, right? Yeah. And then you call them in. Okay, what would you guys like to do? What's your terms? And no one knows of it because they got so ravingly upset and blinded by their passion about, like, it's, you know, I'm upset that the security problems exist. But then when you go, okay, well, what's your solution? No one's prepared, right? That's a fact because we're so – adamant about telling everybody what they did wrong and i think this comes down to a people thing too as um we've gotten caught up in our passion and this is when passion is great but it's also gone overboard right and we're overzealous and now it's time to step back and say who wants to lead us who wants to help you know find the the, the who, who are the type of people that collectively want to help uh, and i don't mean build another working working board or another uh, you know committee i mean i mean It means that if you're a CISO in your office right now, it's sometimes okay to say I'm not perfect, and I know that everybody thinks the responsibility is on me, but I don't know the answers either. I'm going to depend on my team, and what do you guys think? And then, you know, the other way around... The infosec people saying, "Okay, I'm not. I'm gonna. I'm gonna listen to my leader, uh, like the CISO on this, and, and he might know some things I don't know." And I think that that's the issue. Is there's a lot of collaborative knowledge and strengths in, in, in all parts of it, but they have to, you know, kind of come together. The problem is, it requires some humility. It requires uh, people to step back. Uh, and stop having to react and drown and and, and kind of prioritize. And it's the hardest thing to do because the minute you go, oh, crap, we're vulnerable or this or that or, oh, my gosh, oh, this. You know what? Everything starts piling down. Yeah. And you have all these already set priorities ahead of you. And now you got to go, wait, we need these priorities too. But you're still trying to also get maybe it's a release, Uh, you know, whether it's your banking software or a new release or this and that. That can't stop either. But how do you – how do you manage going, oh my gosh, there's all the, and, and so what happens to the reactionary point, but what you have to get to, you can't get to it any other way, I, I've learned. There is no other way except for you going, I did an audit, we have all these problems, da 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 da, right? There's not one single company I don't think that's start like really ch- truly can say they, from the beginning, they were like thinking of this, you know? It, it might start now in the next generation of startups and next generation hopefully, but there's always that point where you're like, We've, we're, we're at their growing pains and we're moving forward. And now we got to also stop because guess what? We're so big that we're causing attention and what's going to happen to us, right? Um, uh, you know, whether it's a, a retailer that's a target because there's cards or a POS or this or that, it doesn't matter what it is anymore. It's the challenge of prioritization. You'll be listening to part one
0: of a two-part podcast with me, Richard Merrill of Red Hat, talking to Lance James of Flashpoint. Tune in next week. You're going to find out how to be a better security practitioner, to get the best of those around you, to be a better resource for your organization, to further your career in InfoSec. Thanks for listening. Come back soon.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's show. Make sure you listen in for more great shows from our back catalog. Subscribe and share the word. Come back soon for more great content.